Welcome to Hiring to Firing, the podcast. Today, Evan Gibbs and I welcome our guest, Fiona Jamieson, CEO of Spring International, a people analytics company that conducts employee surveys, analyzes people data, and provides insights at every stage of the employee lifecycle. Thank you for joining us, Fiona. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Let's start by first explaining what we mean by people analytics. Fiona, can you please explain how people analytics is used in the workplace? Sure. So people analytics is really the practice of collecting and analyzing organizational and people talent data to improve business outcomes. It really helps leaders to align resources so they get the most out of their people. Uh, The most common thing that you'll see companies using people analytics for is making decisions about who they're going to hire, when they're going to hire, how they're going to retain and engage their talent. So we have a good example of that in the 2011 film Moneyball. Moneyball is inspired by the true story of Billy Bean, general manager of the Oakland A's baseball team. Constrained by lack of money, Billy built a team of overlooked and undervalued players with a system of statistical analysis known as sabermetrics. Against all odds and the expectations of baseball's so-called experts, the A's made it to the playoffs in 2002. I believe that there's a championship team of 25 people that we could afford because everyone else in baseball undervalues them. Like an island of misfit toys. But really what's threatening is their livelihoods, threatening their jobs, threatening the way that they do things. And every time that happens, whether it's a government or a way of doing business or whatever it is, the people who are holding the reins have their hands on the switch. They go crazy. I mean, anybody who's not tearing their team down right now and rebuilding it using your model, they're dinosaurs. So, you know, the use of data analytics in the workplace has been around for a while. But due to advances in technology and accessibility, it seems to have increased exponentially since the 2011 film or you know, even going back to the 2002 actual incident that happened with the Oakland A's. At the time, though, in Moneyball, people thought that Billy Bean was crazy. This seems to be an important trend now. People seem to have accepted it more. What are your thoughts about that, Fiona? In your work, do you see that it's becoming more and more commonplace in the industry? Yes, absolutely. We've been doing analysis at Spring for for about 30 years. So it's it's been around for a long time and how organizations use data has certainly progressed since we first started doing surveys and we had those big binders full of, you know, data that sort of got dumped on the CEO's table. Very much more accessible now through the software and technology that's available to companies. I think what's different is that you know, people within HR are being expected to use data and leverage data more frequently in their day-to-day jobs and make use this information to make better decisions. The thing that's interesting about Moneyball is that they have this huge constraint of, of money, right? How do we spend this money on these players? And in most organizations today, the most expensive resource you have is your employees. It's your workforce. So you better be using everything you can, data analytics, to generate insights on how you're going to leverage and get the best and most out of your people. Because, you know, you do if you're looking at a machine or some kind of, you know, computer system, you want to make sure you get the most out of it. You're spending an awful lot of money on your employees. You should be using these tools to help you make sure you're making the right decisions. I've got to follow up on that point. I mean, you know, 
the one thing, the first thing that sort of jumps comes to mind when we're, you know, you mentioned Moneyball and, you know, the use of the statistics in that movie, you know, in Moneyball, it's the data that they have, you know, the data that they use to perform the modeling and all that. It's, it's relatively easy to collect, right? I mean, it's, you know, strikes, runs. I mean, it's, the data is not only like very clear and easily measurable and quantifiable, but it's also like readily available. There's, it's not hard to get the data. I mean, everybody knows all that data is publicly available. In terms of, you know, the way that your company, you know, performs its analytics, it seems like to me one of the hard parts, and I don't know this, but the question for you is, you know, how hard is it to get good usable data? That seems to me like that would be the challenge as opposed to in Moneyball, where they've just got this, you know, this great data set to work with. Yeah, it, it really varies by organization. Some organizations have got incredible data. They've got more data than they know what to do with. The biggest challenge we see is how clean that data is and the quality of the data. You may have an HRIS system that lists every employee you have and what title they have and how long they've worked for you, but you may not have things like gender or age, or if you do, that may be incomplete, or maybe it's not their current role that's listed. Maybe it's their past role, because this is often data that has to be updated on a very regular basis. So there's often gaps and messes. And that's why a lot of people analytics relies on attitudinal data through employee surveys, because that's something you can go out and you can collect and you can measure attitudes about different things, whether they think their supervisor is effective, whether they feel treated with dignity and respect, whether they feel like they have opportunity for advancement. So attitudinal data is used most often in HR departments to try and get a sense of what is the employee experience like? How are they employees um, experiencing everything from onboarding all the way through to exit? So there is a challenge. The data is not always clean. Sometimes it's messy. It's not always kept up to date. So you've got to leverage what you can. So we're often helping companies going from having dirty data. We do this data blueprinting process with them where we help them to understand what data do they have today? What data is missing? What are the gaps? And how can they start and begin to collect data in a more systemic way that gives them the kind of quality data that you need to run the kinds of predictive analytics that you saw in, in Moneyball, right? He had, like you said, incredible data, thousands of cases. And that's the other piece is the size of your organization has an impact. If you've got 30 to 50 employees, there's a limit to how much you can use advanced predictive analytics. If you've got 10,000, 20,000 employees, suddenly the kinds of statistics and anal analysis you can do, you know, expands exponentially. So there's a lot of context about what good data looks like. I'm curious, is there like a sort of a threshold that you consider for a company size to where you think it's really valuable to employ predictive analytics? You know, I think anytime you get over, you know, 250 employees, you've got sufficient data to start looking at um, some of the more sophisticated analysis. That said, I think small companies, even if you've got 30 employees, you should be taking time out to to gather employee feedback through employee surveys. You should be taking the time at least once a year to say, hey, what's it like to work here and how can we get better? They're your most valuable resource. You better be talking to them. Fiona, the, the difference between many balls use of data, which, you know, as we've said, is really objective and big quantities of data and an attitudinal survey data, for example, I would think the attitudinal survey data must be fairly subjective. And how do you formulate questions to really get at answers that are of use to companies? 
So I think there's a couple of things that you need to be thinking about. You always have to make sure the question or the, the statement that you're having employees respond to is actionable. You know, something that, you know, if they score low on this question, we know how to respond to it. A big, vague questions, you know, I'm happy at work and not, you know, they're not helpful because, you know, whether you get a high score or low score, what do you do about that? So, you know, being very specific about elements of the job, whether it be pay fairness or feedback from my supervisor or feeling included in voice in in meetings the more specific you can get the better and making sure you're covering core elements of the work experience we tend to think about four categories who we are what we offer how we operate and how we lead so the the four components so who we are is like the culture what is the mission and vision and values of the organization am i aligned to those mission and values what we offer is all the things like training, flexibility, pay, benefits. What how we operate is, you know, do I have the tools and resources that I need? Is the the policies and practices make sense and enable me to be effective? And then how we lead is, you know, it does my manager, you know, walk the talk? Does my manager treat me with dignity and respect? Does my leader share clear goals with me? Right? So when you have those four areas, you're really measuring the entire employee experience. So if you're going to go in and do an all-employee um, survey, for example, you want to make sure that you're covering those kinds of measures. I would imagine from a legal compliance standpoint, a big pitfall with the use of data analytics is getting the information in, seeing where the trends are trending down, and then not doing anything about it. So um, do you work with companies to sort of formulate action plans and, and make sure that there's follow through? Yes, we absolutely do. And I think one of the things we always say at Spring is there's no such thing as survey fatigue. There's lack of action fatigue. People love to give their opinion. Like you absolutely ask me what I think about working here, but I will get really annoyed if you don't do anything with that feedback. If I tell you X, Y, or Z is broken, and then you just walk away and you don't do anything about it, Next time you ask me a question, I'm not going to bother telling you because I've just wasted my time and done that before and nothing changed. So there's two things that we do with our clients. One is when we share the results, we make sure we're really clear about what the top priorities are. You know, here's some short-term wins, some mid-term things you have to focus on and the long-term goal. And then we help them to prioritize what are the resources we need to get this done? Who's going to be held accountable? By when? And how are we going to measure when it's been completed. Because if you don't have that accountability, if you don't have that follow through, next time you try and get employee feedback, your response rates are going to go down, people are frustrated. And if they do, even worse, they're going to use it as evidence in a lawsuit, yeah. right? You know, if, it's, if someone's exactly. saying this is a discriminatory environment and then the company doesn't react to that, that's just going to be fodder for their exactly. lawsuit down the road. I'm curious, do you ever do your, provide any of your data or perform your analysis under an attorney-client privilege, like working directly with a law firm? I was just thinking the same thing. We do. We do. In fact, with numerous clients, we either do the work through the law firm um, or through the legal department within the organization. It really depends on the kinds of questions being asked and how the data is going to be analyzed. So a lot of our DEI assessments, for example, often go through the legal department because there's a limited number of people that you want to have access to that kind of analysis and the way in which the data is aggregated and grouped together is really vitally important. So anytime we're doing any kind of 
diversity, equity and inclusion analysis. It's most frequently done hand in hand with sort of general counsel and, and legal representatives. Um, I know this is probably a pretty broad question, but, you know, in terms of sort of follow through and, you know, taking taking action based on the, the, the analytics you provide, do you, do you see a pretty good, um, I guess, you know, percentage or or I guess, yeah, I guess percentage. You, do, you, you, do most of your clients sort of follow through and act on the data that you give them or do, do, do you see sort of a mixed bag? Or I would say it's about a 70-30. 70% do really, really well. And I think it's because we do train them on the accountability piece is an important part of it. There's always some clients, however, who either don't like what they've heard, you know, and say, well, it's not us. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, well, it might not be pretty, but it's definitely you. We didn't make this stuff up. I don't have the time or ingenuity to do that. Um, but sometimes, you know, if it's something that's hard to hear, um, that, you know, they get sort of stuck and, and we try to help them to get unstuck. Sometimes I think that the, they try to boil the ocean and they try to do too much. And I'm a fan of just do one thing really well and then communicate. Tell your employees that you heard them and you did something to make a change. That's going to have so much bigger impact than trying to do 10 different things and failing at four of them. Do companies go in ahead of time with you and sort of strategize of, all right, if we get this bad answer, this is what we're going to do about it so that they don't go too broad in the surveys if they can't handle the negative answers that come back. Yeah, we during the design session, we have a very honest conversation about what they should be asking. If you're not willing or ready to make a change about X, let's not even ask about it. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, and, and one thing that often comes up with this is pay. Right. Pay is always one of the lowest scoring items on a survey. Companies are typically like, well, we're not going to throw money at the problem. It's an important question to ask because it's a labor risk. You know, it makes you vulnerable to union organizing if you have pay issues. And so understanding and having that information is, is critical in my mind. But if you are not willing to address issues of pay, if they thought fall below a certain threshold, then you probably shouldn't be opening up that kind of wounds with your employees. So we try to have that conversation ahead of time. Sometimes it's about pay. Sometimes it's about growth opportunities. Sometimes it's about automation investment, whatever, whatever the key is for that organization. I'm curious, do you have any, you know, just like in Moneyball, how, you know, it's like a really good example of how data analytics, you know, sort of let the A's really kind of turn the turn the ship around, so to speak. Do you have any like really good sort of success stories or like Oakland A's type stories where you've had a client that, you know, used the data that you gave them and they sort of righted the ship and, and really went out and excelled? Yeah, I have a couple. We worked for a long time with a large retailer who shall rename unnamed. And they, when we started working with them the first year, their engagement score was uh, 40% which means less than half of their employees really wanted to work there. I mean, you know, engagement is really a measure of, you know, commitment and satisfaction and discretionary effort. They're willing to go above and beyond for the company. And if you think about it, only 40% of your employees care enough. To sh they're barely showing up. Yeah, but in a retail environment, that doesn't really surprise me because people, that tends to be more of a transient workforce. People are going in there. They're not making a whole lot of money. The work's a little boring, I would think. It's, well, what does the data tell us, Fiona? Well, and yeah. here's the thing. So, you know, when they started off at 40%, five, well, three to four years later, they'd increased by 20%. 
So they went for 40 to 60. By the year five, they were at a 72% engagement. What did they do differently? So here's what they did differently. They, in every single location, they established a people action committee who focused in on the results. So when they got the results back, the manager of the location had an open dialogue with employees and said, okay, wow, we really sucked in these results. What are we going to change? What one thing? So they actually took action at the store level and the employees, they felt heard. They felt, you know, like they were empowered and they were included. And I think this was the key they were included in the solution. So for example, let's say one store, they they felt they hated their break room. They felt it was dirty. One of the microwaves didn't work. You know, it just was a miserable place to go and eat lunch. So as a result of their survey, this came up as an issue in the action planning committee. They said, well, can we, can we decorate this ourselves? And the the store, they purchased another microwave, they painted the location themselves inside, they put up posters that they wanted to see, it became a welcoming and warm environment, and now everybody loves it, right? So there's a couple of lessons there. One, they focused in on one issue. Two, they involved the employees in the action. You know, it gave them a sense of pride and ownership, and they they felt heard. And so I think, I think with the right system of follow-through, you can really see a change. The follow-up piece of that, is that something that you sort of help with or are you really just sort of providing the, the sort of data and the things that they should do? Or is there like another type of, you know, consulting firm that comes in and like helps implement these things or how does that process work? Because I can see, I can see my clients getting your results and saying, you know, do X, Y, and Z and here are the things you need to, to do. And they're like, I don't, I don't know, I don't, I don't know what to do, you know, like, why do, how do I make this, how do I make this change? Yeah, then the lunchroom example is a nice, easy, concrete example, right? But I'm sure lots of the other answers are a little more amorphous or larger and overwhelming than that. Yeah, so it really depends on the issue and it depends on the client. It depends on the resources they have in-house. So we had spent time with this particular client training their regional HR people to go and establish these sort of you know, grassroots meetings and, and action planning. So we sort of did a train the trainer in that circumstance. With clients that aren't as big as that, we often run the action planning component for our clients. So they can use us as the sort of resource for best practices and ideas and putting things in motion. So it really depends on the client and how many resources they have in-house versus what they need to kind of bring in from the outside. And I mean, I think the, I'll, I'll tell you that one of the biggest challenges often is large corporate environments where, you know, you're dealing with lots of sort of office employees and people are sitting in cubicles and they're not engaging in the same way there. Um, I think that becomes much harder and it's become an even bigger challenge for companies. Now they have remote employees. They're having to get really creative in how we involve employees in taking action because now if they're not even coming into the office how do you maintain that culture of involvement and inclusion when people aren't necessarily face to face yeah i wanted to ask you about covid have you seen any changes in your work as a result of covid19 and and a result of so many workforces going remote or at least into a hybrid model We've been collecting data since before COVID, during COVID, and I mean, we're talking thousands and thousands of survey responses every week. So we know what the employee sentiments have been across the industries. And, you know, you've heard probably a lot about the great resignation and lots of people leaving. I wouldn't term it that. I would call it the great rethink, right? It, because people are actually rethinking how they want to engage 
with a workplace, right? Do I, do I really want a career or just, do I just want a job, right? Do I want some structure or do I really want all this flexibility? Do I feel as if I really need to go up the pay scale or am I actually happy where I am and can I live the life that I want with this current salary? People are opting out of the workforce and people are completely shifting um, where they were. I mean, we've seen people shift from heavy corporate environments to education and vice versa. So people are really rethinking. And what we're seeing in terms of what we're measuring changing Employees are much more focused now on flexibility, on health, on benefits, on culture and teamwork. People are really thinking about what do I get out of this? And am I getting something of value from me other than a paycheck? You know, we talked about this on another episode. I don't know if it's going to be in, in before or after this one airs. And, you know, we have recorded it. I'm curious, have you seen any sort of general trends, um, like generational t- trends? Because that's something that I hear, at least anecdotally, you know, we talk about a lot. You know, we see these, you know, these, I'm a millennial. I'm, I'm actually a millennial. And, I, and, and, you know, I see all these Gen Zers coming through. And I'm like, man, they're so different. You know, just like the baby boomers were like, yeah, these millennials are so lazy and entitled. And, and now the Gen Zers, I'm like, I don't understand TikTok. I don't know. I don't know why these people speak a different language. So I'm just curious what your take is, you know, any sort of generational splits or anything like that. So as much as I see generational differences, I actually think it's life stage differences that we tend to see. Are they new to a career? Are they new to a position versus have they been in a position or a career or a company for a long time and where they are in their life stage? Pre-kids, with kids, you know, sandwich generation, kids and parents, right? I mean, so I think it's, there's a lot of external influence into what we bring into the workplace, right? Gen Xers right now are the sandwich generation, right? They're dealing with elderly parents and kids probably launching them to college. We're seeing the younger generation of people entering the workforce now, putting a lot more emphasis on things like mission-driven organizations and purpose and feeling like they're making a difference and having a value more so than the previous generation. We're seeing people who are, I guess they would be boomers, late Xers, who are feeling passed over for a lot of new positions because of the technology component. So a new opportunity opens up within my company and I think, oh, that sounds interesting. I want to apply for that. But they're feeling ignored or that they're not considered because they don't have some of these new skills. So that's almost like an age discrimination issue that they're being feeling passed over for positions that they potentially could be very qualified for. So people feeling stuck in their careers and also people are staying in the workforce longer. So, you know, you hit 50, potentially you've got 20 more years you may be considering working. I don't want to still be in this same job, this same role for another 20 years. I mean, I do at spring because I'm the CEO, (laughs) right? So I'm going to be bossing people about for the next 20 years. But, But I think, you know, if you're in a senior leadership role and you're of that age, the fear of trying to move companies and potentially having to start over versus staying where I am and is this where I want to be, considering I still have, you know, another 20 years that I might be putting in. Um, and, you know, we see, yeah, we Very see the generation yeah. job hopping around and going two years here, two years, right. there, three years there. It's not that easy to do when you've got a mortgage and, <laughs> you know, kids in college and parents to take care of. So your ability to flex and take advantage of some of these things, 
matters where you are in your life stage, I think almost more so than the generational piece. It used to be that, you know, if you had a resume where you jumped around a lot, it was looked on as a negative. And nowadays, if you have a resume where you stayed in one place your entire career, that's what's looked on as a negative. Very interesting how perceptions have changed. It's also interesting that I just, you know, you're talking about that and I'm realizing that sometimes I'm 37 and sometimes I'm like, man, I'm 37. Gosh, I'm getting so old. And then I'm like, you say that. I'm like, I've got like 30 years left to work. You have a long way to go, Evan. Good perspective. Yeah. I've only got 35 years left to work, you know? Well, and I think what employers are need to be thinking about, and we were part of a people analytics discussion the other evening. um, And we were talking about how, companies are stressing out because of the tight talent market and how few people there are available. And they're ignoring the talent they have within. And I think they need to start thinking outside the box about how do we use the data that we have, understand who we have, and leverage that experience and knowledge and maybe redirect it and retrain. Surely it would be easier to retrain, you know, somebody who's been with you for 20 years on a new piece of technology and have all of that organizational institutional knowledge than it would be to teach all of the institutional knowledge and experience and the technology. And the only pitfall I see there is when often you'll times you'll see line employees, for example, becoming supervisors just by virtue of, the, of their seniority and the fact that they've been in that position for such a long time and are an expert as a line person, mm-hmm. but they're not given any supervisory training and they've never managed people before. And that is sometimes can be a real recipe for disaster. So yeah. having the right training in place, whether you're pulling people in from internally into new positions or from the outside, training is so critical. Yeah. And I'm, we're actually seeing a, an increased investment again in leadership development and leadership skills than we've seen. I feel like it dropped off a couple of years ago and we're seeing companies more willing to reinvest in that in the last year or so. And I think it's because of the talent market. And the need to retain people. Yeah, if I can't grow it, if I can't buy it, I need to build it and grow it. And if it's so hard to buy it, you better hold on to what you have, right? Exactly, exactly. So uh, one last question for you, Fiona, before we let you go. You know, getting back to Moneyball, one of the things that struck me about the movie was the sort of people component to it. At one point, Billy Bean asks, and I'm forgetting now the name of the character who he's working with, the economics um, kid, basically, Jonah Hill's character. Um, But he asks him to go and let a player know that the player has been traded. And the character was sort of shocked that he's being asked to do that and very uncomfortable having a very uncomfortable conversation. What are your thoughts about sort of making sure that there, the human element stays in people analytics? And I ask you this because uh, you know, I could just relate my own personal experience. I you know, worked as an outside counsel for a long time as a, in a law firm, and then I spent a period of time in HR and in-house actually in a legal department. And as a young lawyer, I would explain to companies, my clients, how to terminate someone, but I never had done the terminating. And then when I went in-house, all of a sudden, I had to actually execute on the terminations. And it's a very different feeling when you're the one having to relay the bad news than when you're on the outside giving advice about that. I mean, what are your thoughts about that? So, so I have lots of feelings about this because my my PhD is in um, uh, Um, organizational psychology and I studied the impact of downsizing on survivors so after you do mass layoffs you know how do employees feel afterwards so so I have a lot of perspective about you know the psychological impact of, of things like firing people but when it comes to people analytics I think there's a true skill in communicating insights 
Like if I say to you, oh, your engagement scores are 50 and you need to get to 55, it tells you nothing. But if I say, you know, of the people in this room, half of them are, are doing work and working for you and hard and the other half are sitting there not really, you know, looking at the flowers outside and they're, you know, doodling on their pad and are not paying attention, that brings that data to life and tells a story. And one of the things I'm constantly trying to remind my clients to, to do is that's not a number. That represents people. That represents perspectives. And so storytelling is a really critical skill of any people analyst. And it's being able to tell the numbers and explain the numbers in in ways that demonstrates experience and personalities and, and impacts versus just it's an 86 Sure. I mean, it's like a very important message. And I think a good message for us to, to leave with. So, you know, once again, Fiona, thank you so much for joining us today and for taking the time to give us an education on people analytics and yeah, how Moneyball, uh, Oakland A's made it to the playoffs in 2002. Yeah, you're welcome. And I got to spend an extra hour or two looking at Brad Pitt. So that's a big win for me. <laughs> <laughs> Copyright Troutman Pepper Hamilton Sanders, LLP. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast is not legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. Troutman Pepper does not make any representations or warranties, expressed or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. Information on previous case results does not guarantee a similar future result. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including, without limitation, reproduction, retransmission or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission of Troutman Pepper. If you have any questions, please contact us at Troutman.com.